think the Texas War Department should have gotten their act a little bit better together. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. In 1843, a group of Texans set out in an ill-fated expedition to raid the famed trading caravans of the Santa Fe Trail and sparked an international incident thanks to an unexpected encounter with the United States Cavalry. This week we talk about Jacob Snively and the Battalion of Invincibles. But first, what's your favorite obscure animal that you've actually seen in Texas? Well, so no I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I've seen a jackalope. Just mm-hmm. you didn't specify live, mm. but um, in in the spirit of what I think you're asking, um, I'm just going to say that I had a giant palmetto bug fly at me once. Um, it, I could have sworn it was as big as my face. I wouldn't say that's obscure necessarily, but it's not something I'm used to seeing, and at the time, um, I was not real happy about it. Hmm. Well, uh, it's, again, maybe not the most, they're common, but they're kind of obscure if you're not used to seeing them. And that would be the Portuguese man-o'-war. It's this big blue jellyfish light creature that is not actually a jellyfish. Uh, it kind of looks like a blue balloon with kind of a weird, angry, thin thing on its head and super stinging tentacles that are awful, awful, awful to get hit by. Even when they're dead they- on the beach, don't touch them. Well, they, they're the ones that wash up on the shore in uh, Galveston? They Well, they're all over the Texas coast. They have been known to do that, yes. Mm-hmm. They also time, wash up on the I Florida could, coast and the California yeah. coast. They're everywhere. One time we couldn't, we actually couldn't, we went to Galveston and couldn't go onto the beach because there were so many washed up jellyfish everywhere. Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. a well, mean lady sometimes. Yeah. Well, uh, the Fort Worth Zoo at one point, I don't know if they still do, but at one point did indeed have a platypus, which if you know what a platypus is, it has a, it's a mammal with a bill and has, and lays eggs. So that's, that's certainly obscure and not, not, not usual to see in Texas. See, I was looking around and I know I've seen a honey badger in a couple other state zoos that I've been to, but I can't remember if I've seen one here in Texas, but the darn honey badger... That that YouTube video still cracks me up. Do, do, eh, do they don't care? Do they lay eggs? Because <laughs> a mammal that lays eggs is really weird. That is obscure. The period of the Republic of Texas was a strange time in history. Now we have been just as guilty as anyone of mythologizing the decade that Texas spent as an independent nation. But hopefully, this podcast has also shed light on the realities that the Lone Star Nation experienced. For the successes that they had with San Jacinto or the Texas Navy, there were also the dismal failures and horrible political decisions made by each of the five presidential administrations of the Republic. Of course, the most famous and tragic military and political missteps of the Texas Republic were covered in two of our earlier episodes, Mirabeau Lamar's ill-fated Santa Fe expedition in 1841 and the even more disastrous Mir expedition launched in defiance of Sam Houston's orders in 1842. Both resulted in defeat by superior Mexican forces and led to the long captivity of their participants in the dungeons of Mexico. Today, we're going to talk about another blundering expedition designed to hit back at Mexico in the disputed lands between the two countries. This one was less well-known than the others, and while it had a better result, it was more a comedy of errors than a tragedy. 
Our story starts with Jacob Snively, a young surveyor and civil engineer who came to Texas from Pennsylvania by way of Ohio in 1835. Now, oddly enough, Snively came to Texas legally, employed as a surveyor for the Mexican government, who hired him to survey grants for European impresarios who Mexico was courting to counter the influence of Anglo-American settlers who were constantly causing problems in the province. Snively settled in Nacogdoches, and he quickly acquired a grant of land for himself from future Texas interim president David G. Burnett. And when the Texas Revolution broke out, he ditched his employers, and he initially joined up with the volunteers as an officer before becoming an officer in the regular army in March 1836 during the runaway scrape. Snively remained in the army after the Battle of San Jacinto and was promoted to captain in August of 1836. A trained and educated engineer was always highly sought out in those days for military service, and despite his relatively young age of 28, he rose quickly in the ranks. In January 1837, Sam Houston appointed him an ambassador to the Shawnee Indians of Northeast Texas with orders to find out where the tribe stood regarding continued conflict between Texas and Mexico. In May 1837, he was appointed Paymaster General of the Texas Army with the rank of Colonel, and somehow in the summer of 1837 managed to serve as Acting Secretary of War. Snively resigned from the Army in September of 1837, but in 1839 he was back in service as Paymaster General once again, and in 1843 was appointed Quartermaster and Assistant Inspector General of the Republic. By all accounts, Snively was reasonably popular with the people of Nacogdoches, with the regular army troops, and with the constantly changing political factions of the Texas Republic. Snively's periods of service directly correspond with the periods of resumed tension and hostility with Mexico, as we have seen in previous episodes. 1841 and 1842 were particularly hot times in the conflict. In 1841, the Lamar Administration Santa Fe Expedition, combined with a return to power of Santa Ana, resulted in two brief invasions of Texas where San Antonio was seized and Texan hostages were taken back to Mexico. The Mir Expedition was an unauthorized attempt by Texas volunteers to retaliate against Mexico, which ended disastrously. Public sentiment in Texas demanded further response. In January 1843, Snively petitioned the Texas Department of War and Marine for permission to intercept a party of Mexican traders who would be traveling through territory claimed by Texas on the way from trading posts in Kansas to Santa Fe. The goal was to appropriate their goods in retaliation for Mexican offenses against Texas. On February 16, 1843, the War Department, directed by President Houston, authorized Snively to organize a unit of no more than 300 men. They were not to be considered an official military unit, but the spoils of the campaign, which would only be taken in honorable warfare, would be divided equally between the government and members of the expedition. In effect, Snively was given a privateer's letter of mark, which is something normally only given to ship captains on the high seas. Snively would essentially be a pirate on horseback. He was given strict orders not to cross the border into the United States and to only engage Mexican or New Mexican militia forces. The unit rendezvoused in April <clears throat> The unit rendezvoused in April 1843 at Fort Johnson near Coffee's Station on the Red River, which is near what today uh, is Pottsboro, north of Denison. Around 150 men gathered and designated themselves the Battalion of Invincibles. 
They organized into three companies and elected Snively, their leader, and set off west along the old Chihuahua Trail. In May, they disobeyed orders by crossing the Red River into the United States territory near the mouth of the Wichita River and headed northwest through present Oklahoma. On May 27th, they reached the point where the Arkansas River and the Santa Fe Trail cross, which is in present-day Kansas, well east of the U.S. border. When they reached the Arkansas River, Snively sent out a unit of scout spies to find evidence of wagons on the trail. They discovered evidence of a recent wagon train, but learned that the train had belonged to some American traders from Bent's Fort in Colorado. Taking advice from the traders, Snively moved his force further west to better positions and probably over the territory line into what was claimed by Texas. For over a month, Snively and his men moved to different camps along the Arkansas River. They were joined also by latecomer stragglers to the expedition, including a man named Charles A. Warfield and three or four of his followers. Warfield was a former fur trader and mountain man who'd somehow managed to get his own commission from Texas Secretary of War George Hockley to organize his own expedition against New Mexico to retaliate for Santa Fe and Mir. You'd think the Texas War Department should have gotten their act a little bit better together. Uh, he only got about 24 men to join him, and they'd recently attacked a small village where they'd killed five Mexican soldiers, taken some prisoners whom, they, whom they'd immediately released, and a number of horses. Mexican troops found them the next day, and they hit Warfield's force hard, killing several and capturing five. The remainder, including Warfield, scattered and mostly returned to Texas. Warfield was on his way back with a few men when he encountered Snively and decided to join up. On June 20th, the Texans struck the Santa Fe Trail about 15 miles below the Arkansas River crossing and ran into a detachment of 100 Mexican soldiers, possibly searching for the remnants of Warfield's expedition. There was a fight, and 17 Mexicans were killed and 82 taken prisoner, with no casualties on the Texan side. The Mexican prisoners appear to have been let go, but their arms, gear, and horses were taken by the Texans. They'd won a victory, but they were getting restless, as a month had gone by without sight of any caravans. I'm detecting a theme in Texas soldiering here. <laughs> Fickleness. Fickleness Fick in Texas soldiering. Fickleness and boredom in Texas soldiering. Morale quickly deteriorated after the battle. Friction between the officers developed, as many of the men, hungry and tired, just wanted to go home. Finally, on June 28th, the battalion dissolved. The Texans organized themselves into two groups, designating themselves the Mountaineers and also the Homeboys. The 76 Homeboys selected Eli Chandler, Snively's former second-in-command, as their leader. It's likely that Chandler had been grumbling about the progress of the expedition for a while and had gathered like-minded individuals around himself. The Homeboys' stated goal was just to go back to Texas. But that didn't happen. Chandler led his followers back east toward the Arkansas in hopes of catching the caravan on their own. The Mountaineers, who openly intended to keep on searching for that caravan, stayed under Snively's command. They marched to the Arkansas River, and on June 30th, they finally found the Mexican caravan on the trail. However, what they didn't expect to find was that it was not guarded by the Mexican army, but by the United States Cavalry. The 1st Dragoon Regiment, under Captain Philip St. George Cook, who is considered the father of the United States Cavalry, had been dispatched to protect the caravan as a result of the murder of a Mexican merchant a few weeks before. And this was probably done by members of Warfield's expedition. 
When the two commanders parlayed along the Arkansas River, Cook asked to see Snively's papers. Snively obliged and protested when Cook stated that Texans were on United States territory and that Snively's men must be disarmed. Snively protested that he was on Texas territory, but Cook wasn't having it. Cook's forces crossed over the Arkansas, surrounded the Texan camp, and ordered Snively's men to surrender, to surrender their arms. Snively had no choice but to give in. Cook initially intended to only leave the Texans with ten muskets, but even this was a bit much in that harsh and hostile territory. So the next day he offered to escort any of the Texans back to Independence, Missouri. About 50 men accepted this offer, leaving Snively with around 50 men. He went further west and was rejoined by Chandler and his remaining homeboys, who'd also encountered Cook's dragoons. Snively still intended to pursue the Mexican caravan, which was finally leaving the disputed territory. However, Chandler and his homeboys were still not happy about the command situation, and this time they really did want to go home. They accused Snively of cowardice for not fighting Cook even though they actually hadn't fought Cook either. Snively was disgusted and resigned command on July 9th, though he stayed with the Mountaineers. Chandler finally left the next day with the majority of the group. The remaining 70 men elected Warfield as commander and set out after the caravan, finally catching up to it on July 13th. This time they did find a force of Mexican troops escorting the wagon train. Several hundred regular Lancers and militia under the command of Governor Manuel Armijo. This was finally enough for the last of the Invincibles, who knew that they stood no chance of capturing the caravan and defeating its escort. They gave up further pursuit and voted to return to Texas. Warfield resigned from the command and slipped off back towards Bent's Fort into the mountains, where he mostly disappears from history. The men turned back to Snively, who was still with them, and they re-elected him to command. At least he could get them back home. And on August the 6th, the remains of the battalion finally reached Fort Byrd on the Trinity near what is today Fort Worth, and they disbanded. So, what did all this accomplish? Two different groups of Texans tramped around Oklahoma and Kansas, killed a few Mexicans, and nearly caused an international incident with the United States. And they got absolutely nothing in return. Well, perhaps that's what old Sam Houston wanted— when Houston opened the next session of the Texas Congress, he made a clear and frosty reference to the United States' incursion into Texas' sovereign territory, claiming that Captain Cook had invaded when they arrested Snively's forces. Never mind that the border was very ill-defined, and Snively's force had clearly gone through American territory to get where they were. Houston's agents in the United States, as well as Texas' business interests, stirred up sentiment among political circles against Cook's action— that our military would support Mexico against our countrymen in Texas. The U.S. government tried to quiet the issue by making a small appropriation in compensation, but Houston was relentless. He used the incident to exaggerate Texas courting of England and France, and even made public efforts to try and normalize relations with Mexico. It was all part of Houston's elaborate plan to push the United States towards annexation. Of course, the incident had its desired effect. Ultimately, the United States would not tolerate either England or France having political sway in Texas, Texas returning to Mexico, or continued political instability caused by reckless Texans. Uh, and within two years, Texas would finally be part of the Union. 
Little is known about Snively in Texas immediately after the end of his infamous expedition. Presumably, he returned to the survey and land business that brought him to Texas. He was known to be living in Corpus Christi in 1848 when news reached Texas that gold had been discovered in California. Snively handed over all of his land and interest to his twin brother, David, and set out west for the gold fields of California. He searched for gold there until 1858, and then he moved out to the Arizona Territory, where he led a group that discovered gold placers on the Gila River near Yuma, setting off a gold rush there. He was then involved in the discovery of the Castle Dome Silver Lode nearby, which extended this rush for a while, and it gave him a degree of financial independence. During this time, he was also appointed a territorial judge in the newly formed Arizona Territory. Gold! There's gold in their hills. Literally. In the 1860s, Snively was mostly settled in what is today Phoenix, but he continued to prospect in New Mexico and Nevada. There he found and lost several small fortunes. Snively was exploring a route in central Arizona in 1871 when his group was attacked by a band of 150 Apache, and he was mortally wounded and abandoned by his companions. His body, badly decomposed and partially devoured by wild animals, was buried near the sandy arroyo where it fell. Seven years later, his friend and fellow Arizona pioneer Jack Swilling and two friends recovered Snively's remains and reburied them behind the Swilling House in what is now Black Canyon City. The Swilling House and the stage stop surrounding it is today a ghost town, but the remains of Snively's grave can still be seen near the ruins. Man, you know, the funny thing is, <clears throat> this seems like one of those pieces of wisdom that uh, Vicini would spout out in uh, The Princess Bride. <laughs> don't, try to, don't try to take... <laughs> Texans should not try to take over New Mexico. No. You know what they needed? They would have been successful if they'd taken camels. Yes, they would have been. I once again argue for the, the power of you know, <laughs> desert power. Yeah, I just think it's it's just fascinating the the schemes that they came up with in yeah. the Republic. Well, I have to say that as as much as we uh, relish the history of Texas and the, the the fact that it was a independent republic for a short time, um, in many ways, as we've mentioned before, they didn't do a very good job of it. No, no, they did not do a good job. They were. Swimming in debt, and uh, they just—it was blunder after blunder, um, and I, it's just the the independent nature of Texans just continually at the at the very granular level continues to rear its head. You know that that no no army that Texas ever fielded as a republic was harmonious, right? It was was a recognized really a solid chain of command or. Or, or any type of real long-term discipline. So, you know, this is just another example of it. It's like, well, we've been here for a month. We haven't seen anything. I want to go home. <laughs> okay, we're going to go home. Yeah, but we're not going to actually go home. We're just going to say we're going home, but we're actually going to go do this thing ourselves and do it right. <laughs> yeah. It's just funny to me, these guys, because it's like, you know, they clearly weren't set mm-hmm. up for success. This is a very... And then they didn't follow directions, and then they just sort of did what sort of always happens in these 
in these sort of situations when you look at like things like the like the Mir expedition and some of those other ones it just all seems to go bad and Sam Houston in his wisdom seems to be like if you want to go off and do this yeah okay and then but on, it's more just to get you out of my hair and to go you know make people feel like they're doing something and then in the end he makes all this political hay out of what what seems like a terrible yeah. time yeah. wandering around in, in yeah. the nowhere and, and i'm Texas amazed that Mexico. they made it through that whole area without once getting set upon by the comanche because or the, or the cheyenne because that was deep in comanche and cheyenne and kiowa territory like they they really exactly. should have <laughs> run in, maybe the comanche were like eh those white fellas are not going to get very far. So <laughs> white white man's not going to get very far. But, uh, you know, the area that this is in is, is uh, you know, flat and then you know, partially flat and then partially hilly up in Kansas. So if you drive out there to western Kansas, you would you would see this exact area. And it's like vast vistas of sweeping hills. And that's it. <laughs> so no trees, just just hills, hills and some creeks and some rivers. And, you know, they were looking for this, this, uh, this Santa Fe trail mother load and just never found it. I feel like we could, I, I like that. They're like, we were wandering along looking for this Mexican caravan and some crazy mountain man who killed a couple of Mexicans <laughs> with a letter. showed up out of the nowhere. With a letter from Let's our boss. Let's put him in charge. <laughs> <laughs> with a letter from our boss saying, this guy can go off too and cause trouble. I yeah. mean, these characters like I picture Rip Torn. I, I I picture Rip Torn. That's that's who I picture. Rip Torn coming out, you know, coming out of the 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 hills. Follow me, boys. Follow me, boys. The caravan's this way. Here's the thing. Like, how did like these people not just like trip over like a like trip over something and die of gang not die of gangrene or like how do people i mean like this seems they like a people, comedy I mean, of errors going on people. here they just i think that's the I think you we made a good point yeah. is like they they just they just didn't want to sit around that's the thing they, they're very fickle they're hardy people but they're very fickle people like if they don't they're not getting what they want which was they wanted i mean they were pirates that's the thing they were land pirates they had a they had the same level of of you know capability and and and, and expectation that Lafitte had had you know forty years before, you know working for the Mexican Revolutionary governments <laughs> they were they were going out to go rob people you know take over people and steal all their stuff basically and the government was going to get part of it. That's the remarkable part to me. I just yeah. no, I think it's uh, that's a cool that's a cool part of the yeah. story. And then, and then to run into the, the finest, gotten, you know, the, the the finest cavalry unit in the United, you know, United States Army, and the the finest cavalry commander of the time in the 1840s is like, oh, wow, that's that's an unusual occurrence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and apparently, reading about Saint, uh, you know Philip Saint George Cook, who has a fantastic name. Uh, he was a northerner and an abolitionist and did not care much for uh, the South or slavery or anything or Texas. So he was really the wrong person uh, to uh, to find himself in the uh, you know to find yourself on on the opposite side of the fence from. He ended up being a general during the Civil War. His son-in-law was Jeb Stuart, 
and they actually fought battles against each other um, during the Civil War. So he was definitely a tough cookie and tough customer. Yeah, that's crazy. But but again, like you said, Sam Houston's going to make hay out of any political situation. Full stop. It's you know Texas is not all guts and glory. It's it's guts and horrible mistakes. And some glory. <laughs> yeah. Was there ever, like, a capability for for the Texas government standing on its own to be able to have any success in these Western campaigns? Or should they have just written off anything to the west of San Antonio and said, can't deal with it for, for another decade? They didn't understand that that New Mexico, even though they claimed the the all everything up out to the Rio Grande and all the way up the Rio Grande, they didn't understand that that was a totally different character than Texas, and that the people, the people were capable of taking care of themselves. I mean, that the New Mexico colony had existed well before the Texas colony had, you know, a hundred years, two hundred years before the Texas colony had. So, you know, they were they were a totally different culture and a different character. It would be like, you know, they never understood that. It would be the same as if they claimed Tamaulipas and and Chihuahua. You know, there were, you know that's that's the kind of thing that they never really got, and and that's constantly. You know, they thought they were going to be able to go out there and do what they wanted. Um, so I, I think that until they, yeah, it, it would not have ever la- ever worked. Uh, they were never going to send their whole army out there either. Like they could have probably sent their whole army out and probably conquered Santa Fe. But would that have been worth it? And then the Mexicans probably would have still gone and taken San Antonio because the whole army would be gone. So it's just bad country that they were in. Um, And they didn't, you know, the other thing is they didn't anticipate, you know, the American government was going to really, the American authorities were going to react the way they did, where they were. It's a great topic, a great find that I'd never heard of, Sean. So kudos to you digging this one up. uh, In a book that I'm reading about Texas history, so... There you go. Read books about Texas history. We'll find ideas. Gotta love it. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or get on over to brainstaple.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm... Back, Sean, with two ends, And I am Scotticus. If you love this show, tell your friends. Tell them what we're doing. Tell them to subscribe and listen, and get on iTunes and leave a review, because that helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, why not visit patreon.com slash Podcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember... That even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.